Welcome to READ, the research, education, and advocacy podcast. In this series, prominent researchers, thought leaders, and educators will share their work, insights, and expertise about current research and best practices in education and child development. READ is produced by the Windward Institute. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Nicole Landy. Dr. Landy is an associate professor at the University of Connecticut, adjunct assistant professor at the Yale Child Study Center, and director of EEG research at Haskins Laboratories. Her research focuses on language and reading development in typically developing children and in children with complex neurodevelopmental disorders. She uses multiple methodologies to identify causal mechanisms that contribute to reading and language difficulties. In this episode, we talk about Dr. Landy's research and pioneering work collaborating with schools through in-school neuroscience. In-school neuroscience holds promise to improve student outcomes in reading and language. Dr. Landy is working on the ground in both research and school environments with the aim for bi-directional learning between science and education. Hi, Dr. Landy. Thank you for speaking with me on the Read Podcast. You're so welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you here at Winward, and I know it's not your first time here. It is not my first yeah. time here. How long have you been working with Windward and what capacity? I've been working with Windward since I believe about 2009. And initially, my work with Windward just involved recruiting uh, students from your school. I believe at that point there was no Manhattan campus. So we were recruiting students to be part of a study that I had ongoing, looking at the neural basis of, of reading and reading disability. And so it was really just a recruitment kind of partnership. And so some of your students came up and participated in my study at um, at Yale at the scanner. Well, that's great. Well, so I'm eager to talk to you about our collaborative work with the in-school neuroscience study between Winward and Haskins. First, I have to tell you that our school has been absolutely buzzing about this research study. Wonderful. Yeah, I can imagine that it's a lot of energy at Haskins as well, right? Yeah, I think the energy coming off of this project is really fantastic. And it kind of permeates throughout my whole lab, actually. So I really appreciate that. It's an added bonus. I could feel that at Winward too. In fact, both teachers, students, families have been asking a lot about the study, been really interested about the findings. So in prepping for my interview with you, I talked to my group of eighth grade language arts students, and they're absolutely fascinated to learn more about your research. And I think that's one of the benefits in in school neuroscience is partnering the students and really having them gain that knowledge as well. So I wanted to start by asking you if a few of their questions, if that's great. That's wonderful. Okay. So their first question for you is, why did you decide to work in research? And for me, I think more specifically, I want to know more about why you started looking at language and reading development. Mm -hmm. Sure. I'm happy to answer that question. So even when I was fairly young, I was just a really curious person. And so I always had a lot of why questions. And so when I got to the point where I was going to go to college, I really loved biology. I was really interested in understanding how, you know, living things worked. And so I started in in that area. I started in a a pre-med track and I didn't do so well in that track because I don't do that well with with blood, <laughs> or um, <laughs> which is kind of critical, and yeah, so that's the most important part. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, I quickly realized that I was better off exploring this question from a psychological perspective rather than actually um, invading the body myself. So I took a lot of psychology classes, and I realized that there was a whole field of psychology called cognitive psychology where you could actually study the brain right in a different way, and so you didn't have to 
be a neurosurgeon, one could be a neuroscientist. We didn't have a neuroscience major at my university, so there was only psychology and like this branch of cognitive psychology. And so I started working in a couple of labs. And I was like, you know, I'm an introverted person. I like to sit and think, and this is perfect for me. I can kind of <laughs> do this experimentation and, and see, see how the brain works. So that's sort of broadly how I got into it. And then the language piece, I think, is just happenstance. Like I happened to fall into a couple of labs that had that focus. And I did work in another lab briefly that worked more on attention, but it was really the linguistic research, understanding concepts and categories and how words are related to each other that really fascinated me most. And I said, you know what, I think I could do this for a long time. And so that's what I did. And then I, I went to graduate school. I realized that I couldn't do what I really wanted to do without something a little more, um, I guess invasive is not the right word, but to, to have those cognitive neuroscience tools that allow you to really look at what's going on under the hood, I had to go on to graduate school. And so I found a program in cognitive neuroscience. And at that point, there weren't that many. It's not that long ago, but the field has had just a lot of change, a lot of rapid change. And so this was in 2000, 1999, I guess, when I was applying. And so there were like three or four programs that I applied to, and I just found a really good fit at the University of Pittsburgh. And I ended up in a lab that studied reading. So in looking back over your career as a neuroscientist, my students, I think actually some of them are going to be future neuroscientists themselves. Cool. So they want to know what is the most rewarding part of your job? The most rewarding part of my job? Well, I guess there are several different levels or ways in which it's rewarding. So through scientific discovery, that's, of course, just rewarding, right? When you have a job where you're actually learning something new. I mean, we all learn something new every day, just sort of walking around, right? But when you're really learning something new that can change how you think about everything, that is so rewarding, right? And so that's a huge, huge reward. When you can do something that contributes to the improvement in other people's lives, that's hugely rewarding, right? And so the work that I do that's related to learning disabilities, down the line, and even I think in the short term, we're doing stuff that's actually improving children's lives, right? And so so that's incredibly rewarding too. And then also, you know, I teach undergraduates. I'm a university professor. And so having those students learn about gene environment interactions and how the brain works and why any of this matters, and it's that's also rewarding. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm sure some of them would like to be in your undergraduate courses today. You know, so <laughs> Wonderful. that's good to know. Um, you mentioned a little bit about neuroimaging methods that you use to understand reading and language. So one of the top questions that arose from my students, and I'm sure a lot of our teachers and parents are wondering, how does the brain look different for typical readers compared to students with reading difficulties, or even more specifically, someone who has dyslexia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we in the field of dyslexia are actually pretty lucky, or in the field of, of reading, uh, cognitive neuroscience of reading, I guess I should say, because we actually have a pretty long history of cognitive neuroscience research. In some areas, there's, there's a, a less lengthy history, right? So people have been using MRI and EEG to study reading since, you know, the 90s. And MRI in particular was not widely used at that point at all. So we actually have a pretty good idea at the group level how individuals with reading disability, in particular, if we're talking about learning disability, more broadly, it's going to be a little bit different. But for reading disability, we do have a pretty good idea of how kids look differently in terms of functional activation, right? And so that is task-based activation. So when they're actually reading in the scanner or they're reading, we're measuring EEG, we can see that they activate certain regions of the brain differently. And primarily that signature is that they activate a certain network of regions, a network that we call the reading network, 
to a lesser degree, right? And so often you'll hear that termed uh, hypoactivation, right? And that's been pretty reliably shown. What is less well understood is other kinds of individual differences outside of that specific left hemisphere reading network that might differ between individuals with reading disability and typically developing individuals and subject level variability, right? So the degree to which that pattern is shown differs across individuals, right? And so, you know, if you look at any one scan, for example, I can't say with certainty this individual has dyslexia. So there's a lot of individual variation. But on average, group level, we can see that really well with a neuroimaging task-based design. If you give me a brain at rest, it's much harder for me to tell you that there's a difference or what that difference is, or the structure of the brain that underlies that function. Seeing it there, much, much harder as well. That's an interesting point you make because some of my students ask, could we use neuroimaging studies to diagnose my dyslexia? If I've gone back before I was diagnosed, could we see that? So I think the group level is an interesting point. Um, I think one of the things I wanted to ask and to clarify for some of the students when they were asking me the questions for you is what activation is. Is it looking like how would that look when you're, let's say, looking at an EEG or an fMRI scan mm-hmm. of the brain? Yeah, so activation, what people are typically talking about when they're talking about activation is MRI data, fMRI data, functional magnetic resonance imaging data, right? And what they're talking about is the, the bold signal, right? The blood oxygen level dependent response. That's it's actually built upon the hemodynamic response, right? So this is blood flow to a region. And what happens is neurons use energy, like all the cells in the body. So they use energy to do the computations that we do for all the kinds of things we do day to day, like read. And so once they, they suck that energy up, then that fresh oxygenated blood has to rush into that area. And so we can track that with an MRI scanner, right? It's a giant magnet, so we can track hemoglobin. And so that's all we're doing. We're showing that areas that were active, that were doing the task, now need that oxygenated blood, right? So that's what activation actually is. And so you can kind of tell from what I said that it's not exactly real time, right? Because I said the neurons fire, they do the task, and then, right, you see this sort of what we call a sluggish um, hemodynamic response, sort of the, the fresh oxygenated blood rushes in. And the trajectory of it's rather slow too. So that's why with MRI, we can see where stuff is happening, but not so much when it's happening, right? So basically, you see that rush of blood in and out, and you can map that, and you can see all the regions that needed that blood, that needed that oxygen to expand energy to do that task. In EEG, we're measuring something slightly different, right? There, it's an electrical response. So we're looking at voltage changes, and we're looking at the scalp, right? Because there are electrodes placed on the scalp. It's not a magnetic field. So here, we're looking at voltage changes across the whole scalp. And from those voltage changes, we're able to see differences as a function, again, of neurons firing, right? But here, it's on a more rapid time scale. So you can actually see more in real time, and I'll show a video today that people can kind of take a look at this, how and somewhat where, but much less where specifically with EEG, more specifically time, when neurons fired such that you can see this big uh, shift in voltage at the scalp. Interesting. So they clearly have benefits to both. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about how, you know, the benefits too for, is that they're both non-invasive measures. So you yep. can answer these questions non-invasively, which I think is really interesting too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You use the term bidirectional learning. So I think the fact that you're here talking to me, answering questions for my students is such a benefit for this bidirectional learning that's occurring between scientists and educators and in-school neuroscience. So I do want to talk more about the school neuroscience and the research project with Haskins. So as part of Haskins Laboratories, you and your team have been pioneers, really, in establishing partnerships with schools. So why partner with schools now? Like, what is, what is so interesting in that partnership for you? Yeah, so it actually has a lot of benefits. So 
from the just sort of basic science perspective, right, bringing children into the lab to study something like reading can be problematic for a lot of reasons, right? Number one, it's difficult for them to get there. They have to take time out of their already busy schedule. They have to come into the lab, and that's tricky. They also are in a non-natural, possibly uncomfortable environment that might increase anxiety, and they're not performing their best. So getting data from kids in the environment in which they're comfortable has benefits that overcome those two challenges that I just mentioned. On top of that, the benefit of getting data in a naturalistic environment has inherent benefits, right? This is the, the, the environment in which they're learning. So measuring them has the most internal validity so that we can actually measure them in a comfortable place where they're actually typically learning. And then beyond all of that, there's the benefits of actually being involved in the school more broadly. So whether it's, you know, you learning from me and me learning from you about what goes on in the school and how reading is taught, that for me is a huge benefit of this study in general. So my work, you know, my background, as I kind of mentioned, I have this cognitive neuroscience background and this language background, and then I kind of fell into reading and really got interested in that. But I don't have an education background. So learning about how this actually rolls out in the classroom is super beneficial to me. And then just learning about the whole environment of the school and how kids interact with teachers and who makes decisions about what gets taught in the classroom, right? That whole level is also super informative for my team. So th those are all the things that I'm sort of getting from this. But I guess I'm not saying that much about what you're getting from me, but I am really loving to watch how the students are gaining so much from this experience as well. It's a, I didn't expect to see the students so engaged in the research process, right? I didn't expect to see them being so excited about learning about their brain and how their brain can change and the kinds of like self-efficacy and agency benefits that that gives. Like I thought about it a little, but I didn't realize how much there would be, so. Yeah, and for teachers and parents too, just knowing that effective instruction can change the brain, right? We know neuroplasticity, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that with effective instruction, the brain can change and it, we're seeing those outcomes and connecting back to the research. It also helps the self-efficacy of the teachers yep. too. Yeah, that's right. That's mm -hmm. a good point. I know. Thank you. I'm like getting more excited. Like I could jump off my chair out of <laughs> eagerness right now. <laughs> so let's talk more about the research project that's yep. occurring with Haskins. We know that you have an established partnership with AIM Academy and mm -hmm. now this year with Winward. So mm -hmm. what does that look like with this research partnership and the study? Yeah, so the research partnership is really just a formalization of the kind of stuff that I've already been talking about. We kind of establish an agreement wherein we're all going to learn from each other. You're going to let us come in and build a lab space in your school and collect data from children. At a day-to-day -day level, though, there's really a lot more, right? As you guys both know, right, we spend a lot of time in terms of organization and planning and then getting the kids where they need to be and collecting the data and then talking about how we're going to kind of disseminate this data and how to capitalize on what the students are learning and should we formalize this. So I think day-to-day, -day, there's those details as well that we could talk about if you have questions about that. But overall, it's just a formalization of this whole process is how I think about it. And so the day-to-day -day research project, what are you hoping to gain from you know, what's the purpose of the study, really? And what are you hoping to learn through the research project? So a lot of the research that's out there, as I mentioned initially, focuses on things like what are the differences between typically developing readers and children with dyslexia, right? And that's a question that you can answer pretty well in a laboratory environment, whether you have a behavioral question or a neuroimaging question, right, a question about the brain. And you can look at the group level how they're different. If you have questions about individuals, you can do that a little bit with school-based research, right? If you bring in enough individuals into your laboratory and you scan them or you look at them with EEG, right, you can answer those kinds of questions. If you want to know how kids change over time, 
again, you can do that a little bit in the laboratory, but now you've got to bring them back multiple times, right? It's hard enough to get them in the first time, as I already mentioned. And I already said all of that stuff about how the sort of non-naturalistic situation makes it hard to collect data. If you want to look at kids over time and how they're changing in their environment, right, this is the kind of thing that you need to do, right? You need to get in there, you need to measure them, and you need to measure them semi-often over a longer period of time. And so really, that's what we want to do. Because the brain, it is plastic. And it's not just plastic for someone who has reading disability and their brain changes and, and now after intervention and now they don't. It's plastic for everybody, right? And also, these children are developing, right? So it's not like they're static. They're dynamic. So you need to, if you want to understand brain development, you have to you know, measure frequently over time to see what that looks like and to see change, right? And so... That's really what this is about, being able to see those dynamic changes as kids progress through an intervention so we can better characterize these neural systems. These single shot you know, neural imaging moments in time are not going to give us that. This is going to give us that. And if we can do that, we can then start to ask all kinds of questions like, well, okay, a given child isn't responding very well to the intervention. How did their brain look differently across this time path than those who were responding well? for example, right? And if you've got the right stimuli and the right tasks, you can even ask more fine-grained questions like, well, do you think that, you know, it's their semantic knowledge that needs a greater boost and we haven't been doing that, for example. And so we can start to ask more sophisticated questions after we have these longitudinal trajectories established. Yeah, I completely understand what you're talking about in terms of looking at the, the nuances, I would say, of the brain and understanding the complexities of how it's working. What is your hope? And you may have talked about this a little bit, but what's your ultimate hope in looking at the success of in-school neuroscience? Well, maybe what is it that you hope to gain? What do you hope that teachers and educators gain through in-school neuroscience? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, it kind of yields a multi-part answer. So from the scientific side, right, I hope to better understand children's brains as a dynamic system as they change, as they go through intervention, right? These kids with dyslexia, as I said, they're not static. They're changing over time. I want to see what that looks like. I also want to know where neuroscience can contribute to education, right? So there's a lot of talk about this, and there's a lot of questions and a lot of unanswered questions. We know that the, the, the brain measures provide very sensitive indices, so they can be very sensitive to small things, like can your brain discriminate between two sounds? And it might be the case that behaviorally you don't see that, but neurobiologically you can see that. So we know they're sensitive, but that's great. But like other kinds of behavioral assessments, they have downsides, right? And I just mentioned to you that there's a lot of individual variability that we're not necessarily able to tease apart. But to, to be able to start to do this individual tracking and individual, almost like personalized medicine, yes. you know, you need to have the, a lot of data and you need to have a lot of data over multiple time points. Sorry, I'm going to say that a lot of times, but it's really true, right, to be able to do that. So I'm hoping that we can actually see where neuroscience fits in, in terms of helping us refine interventions for individuals. And I don't think we're going to get that tomorrow. I think we're going to need a lot of data before we can do that. But I think this project is going to go a long way towards getting us that data that we need. Right. And so I'm really excited about that. I'm also really excited just about establishing the partnerships just from a selfish perspective. This really gives me and the members of my lab the kind of 
experience that we need to keep us going and keep us searching, right? And so being able to see the benefits, right? Being able to see how the teachers are benefiting, how the students are benefiting, it's keeping us going, right? And so that in and of itself is has become uh, fulfilling for me. So one of my last questions, I wanted to remind our listeners and you, Dr. Landy, about the purpose of READ. READ is the Research Education Advocacy Podcast. It provides an outlet for listeners to learn more about the intersection between research and education and then advocate for students. And you spoke a lot about this, but just to clarify some of the advocacy work, because really this what this is, is in-school neuroscience is advocating for students here, students with, with dyslexia, and really all students. So can you just summarize really how is in-school neuroscience advocating for students ultimately? Yeah, I think that's a really great question because I think it's not always apparent, right? So some of this is reminding the community, right, whether it's our legislators or our higher education folks who are teaching teachers, that science matters, that there is a science of reading and that it has a place and it's contributed already to everything we know about how best to teach reading. And we're going to continue to do that. Some of it is also about what I kind of touched upon already about the kids who are involved, right, whether they're directly involved in a study or whether they're just part of the school and they're hearing about it, to really embody and understand this idea that there's not something wrong with them, right, that there are massive individual differences across people. You know, I want kids to understand, and I think this is going to help them understand, that there are large individual differences across people and that those individual differences lead to an in-brain, right? There's individual differences. And so those individual differences lead to differences in behavior. And for them, they have a particular individual difference that makes it hard for them to read. And that this individual difference isn't something that they can't change, right? That the brain is plastic. And that, you know, it might not change in the same way for everybody, but that, you know, it it is the case that they can be better readers, right? And I hope that understanding a little bit more about the details, thinking about synaptic plasticity as we talk about the study and we talk about what actually contributes to the change that we see in our measures, that if they think about that, they can think about how they can actually change. And there is some research out there that suggests, not in the reading domain, it's in a totally other domain, just in science and STEM education for elementary school students, that if they understand things like neuroplasticity, they're more likely to not see their any given individual trait as fixed, right? That they actually have agency to change that. And so I hope that we're actually able to provide additional information to them to help them feel this in a sort of deep and embodied way. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm, that's why I'm looking forward to more about in-school neuroscience and really just in general how we're collaborating with research and education. That was going to be my last question, but selfishly, I have one more question to ask you. You do so much research. You have a lot of different research interests. Fr- frankly, I don't know where you find time to sleep, but... I actually sleep really well okay. for like eight <laughs> hours a night. Yeah. Well, I know you do a lot of research with genetics and sleep and memory consolidation. So is there anything other than reading and language, or they're kind of tied, they're tied together, obviously. But is there anything that you haven't talked about in your research that you are really excited to share with our audience members? Hmm, that's a great question. You mentioned sleep and memory consolidation. So the first thing I want to say is that, you know, none of this stuff we're studying lives in a vacuum, right? The brain is not modular in sort of the traditional definition of modularity, right? All of the regions of the brain, all of the things that we do, they communicate with each other. So your memory, your executive function, your systems for sleep, your systems for attention, all of those are going to impact your ability to use the language and to read. And all of those things are developing over time, right? So 
I don't think of those things as separate from the work that I do on reading or the work on language. It really is all part of the same system. So for example, that work on consolidation, right? Yes, it sort of focuses on can you remember stuff overnight or do you get a boost from sleep and such that your performance looks better after you've learned something, after you've actually slept. But really what that's about is learning, right? And everything that we do is learning, learning to read, right? Learning to speak. And so, you know, we've identified or we think we've identified some neural correlates associated with consolidation. And we think that it is the case that some individuals who are not making gains in certain domains may have atypical sleep consolidation. We can't say yet why that might be true, but all that really means is that some kids get a boost from sleep after they've learned something, and some kids don't. And we know that sleep is important for all kinds of learning. And so maybe there's something going on in sleep that we could think about as, as a target. Whether or not something that the thing that's going on at sleep is different from the thing that's different for them during the day, we can't really say. But it does seem like some kids who have learning disabilities are not getting that boost to the same degree. Well, my students' last question for you um, as a neuroscientist is, is telepathy real? I think that's a, a, a question for another time. Oh. So instead, I'll thank you for your time. And if our listeners want to learn more from you, where can they find you on the internet? So they can find me. There's I, I don't know the URL, so forgive me. I have a, a Landy Lab webpage. If you Google it, it comes up really easily. My name is not super common, so I come up really easily if you Google <laughs> me as well. But I'm at the University of Connecticut and at Haskins Laboratories and at the Yale Child Study Center. And if they want to know more about telepathy, Stephen King has a book that came out recently called The Institute. They should read it. It's not the best book, but it has a very interesting take on telepathy and telekinesis. And they actually talk a lot about a gene that I've studied recently, BDNF. So it may be that BDNF is involved in telepathy. So maybe I do know something about it. (laughs) Well, maybe I'll just have to invite you into my classroom at some point this year. Sounds good. You can lecture the students about telepathy and all things neuroscience. (laughs) Well, thank you, Dr. Landy. We're so lucky to have you here at WinWord and learn from you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Read. To learn more about Read or upcoming episodes, visit readpodcast.org. You can also access my top Read bookmarks. Telepathy may or may not be in there. Or tap moments from each episode by visiting each episode page on our website. My goal is to continue to connect and learn from inspiring leaders and advocates in research and education. If you have any thoughts, questions, or ideas of topics and speakers, feel free to reach out via email at info at readpodcast.org. I also invite you to like, subscribe, and share the Read Podcast with friends and colleagues. You can also like or follow Winward's social media pages to find out more about upcoming episodes, speakers, and events. Until next time, readers.